You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to Let's Talk Photography, episode 32, the show for May 2016. I'm your host, Bart Bouchotts, and joining me this month is not so much a panel as a guest, although a guest who's been on many panels. Um, Antonio, thank you for joining me today. Hi, Bart. Thanks for having me today. Um, sh- should we mention to our listeners that this is Antonio with the contrast slightly turned down because he's, he's not feeling the May West today? Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit of a, having a little bit of a bout. About well, hopefully, hopefully you feel better soon, and yeah, I say we'll, we'll we'll distract you for an hour of photography talk. That'll cheer you up. Up here, yeah, it usually does. So my thought for this month's show, uh, it sort of come about in a in a roundabout way, I guess, as a result of last month. So last month I interviewed um, Elaine Giles, who is an Adobe trainer and general training person in lots of things, and uh, we talked about learning new software. Um, and so I've been playing around with some new products, uh, Affinity Photo in particular, and I'm still trying to become friends with Lightroom. I, I think I'm slightly becoming friends with Lightroom. Not, not quite. Good to hear. Not bosom buddies just yet, but I'm getting there. Getting there. Um, but and then Alison has been talking to me a lot about photography editing tools because Alison is playing around with a bunch of tools, an awful lot of Affinity Photo as well. And Alison's working on a big review for Don McAllister Screencast Online. So Alison's really been digging into the absolute innards of these things. And what struck me is that although there's lots and lots of different products, an awful lot of them have very, very, very similar functionality. And Something we haven't done on this show is actually just talk through what that functionality is. So it's one thing to say, oh, yes, well, they all have a levels adjustment. Okay. What does that mean? Oh, they all have a clarity slider these days. Okay. What does that mean? Oh, they have, they have curves. Okay, great. What does that mean? So I thought we might actually just work through what these things actually mean. And I'm hoping this will be a good partnership between me and you because I'm a sciencey person with my science degree and you're a photographer person with your arty skills. So I'm hoping to talk about the what it means mathematically and why we might want to do that artistically. I'm mm. hoping we get both of those aspects of these things. That's, that's yeah, and I was just with Allison on Chit Chat Across the Pond, and we were talking about the difference between adjustments and filters. I so, still don't understand. I, I, I just think they're just made-up words that we've taken from the real world and un- illogically applied in the digital yeah, world. That's what I'm, my conclusion is, although I don't think I came to the conclusion on the show. I think I came to it today <laughs> after reading an email she sent about, you know, you know, uh, something in affinity that's got a filter that's also in adjustments. And I think it's just bad wording and it's, we're carrying around words that are left over from the film days and we're not, you know, we're not changing them for the technology really. Yeah. Just kind of confusing. And sometimes film is a good analogy and therefore a good source of words. And sometimes it just isn't. I I agree. And I think people just don't know what to refer to because it's a new well, it's not a new medium. I mean, digital photography has been around for a little while, but it's relatively new compared to how long film has been around. Yeah, I, so I mean, think we're still trying to work out these. You know, eighteen thirty-eight is when photography came along, and yeah. what Photoshop is it's, the eighties. Yeah, so, and a lot of these, a lot of these terms and things that you're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about today, uh, I think originate from 
the original versions of Photoshop. Yeah, being such a, a market leader, it, it, the words those guys chose, and they did. I'm sure that when they were choosing them, they didn't realize they'd be setting a vocabulary for an entire industry for decades to come. Yeah, I'm but sure. they did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, before we get into specifics, I actually want to start off by just laying a little bit of groundwork. So, what's going on when you're doing any digital uh, film editing or di- film editing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> digital <laughs> photographic editing, whatever we're calling this, uh, photo editing in the digital world, uh, is that you have some input data, which is some sort of file that has come from your camera, and your output is some sort of file that you can display on your computer. And generally speaking, the output is going to be displayable as a JPEG, which means it's going to be limited by JPEG's color depth and limited by JPEG's uh, level of sort of you know how many steps of brightness jpeg can represent and everything we do all of these sliders what they're doing is they're applying some sort of mathematical function to the input to create the output and at all times that's what's going on and so if you start with a jpeg and end with a jpeg most of every every slider you touch involves the computer inventing some data because there is nothing else for it to come from and has to just sort of infer it guess it because, you know, you have a JPEG and you try to brighten it. Well, there are no actual brighter values, so it has to guess. Which is why when you're starting off with a RAW, you have an awful lot more leverage. Because you get to do an awful lot more before the computer has to start guessing. Because the data at the input is bigger than the data at the output. So you can do lossy things. And you're still working off real data. If that makes sense. Makes sense to me. So, so bearing that model in mind is how I want to talk about the various adjustments. So I figure, actually, well, most of these editors have these adjustments in an order, and that order isn't random. They don't just put them alphabetic or they don't put them based on a whim. The order is generally to do with how the maths flows. So you will always find way, 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 way up the top, If usually the very top, you will find your white balance adjustment, which is probably the best one at making people's heads explode so i'm regretting going with it first but <laughs> are you are you using uh lightroom as your uh as i your... am but also my memories of like aperture a... which was exactly the same oh. uh, yeah the, i remember the order of lightroom as being you would start with the base of the image and work yeah. your way to more finer detail work yes and so the very yeah. very first thing is have I got the colors of light correct? Right. Which is your white balance. So it, the, the color of the light bouncing off the thing you're photographing will affect how it is picked up by the camera. And if, if the camera was set up, if you tell the camera this is red light, which is very extreme, so let's say yellow, and in reality it was like a blue tungsten or something, then every color will be wrong. And if you're shooting in JPEG, that's not really very good because you've very little left to correct it with. But if you're shooting in RAW, all the data is kept and you then get to say, well, actually, no, I I was wrong about that. Or the camera was wrong because the chances are you're shooting in auto white balance, which means the camera just looks at the colors of light coming in and goes, this seems like it's a mostly grass scene like I have on record. Therefore, I will adjust it this way. Or this seems like an indoor shot. I think this is probably some sort of fluorescent light, so I'll adjust it this way. And with the white balance, what you're doing is you're you're telling your image processor what color the light bouncing off the thing you photographed was so that it can actually properly represent the colors 
that were in the real thing that you actually took the photograph of. Can I say that white balance was a term that came originally from video, video production. Oh, okay. So, yeah, well, we never had it in photography. In photography with film, we had films that were balanced to different color temperatures based on, you basically had indoor films and outdoor films. So the, the, film the notches was, on this control were very, very granular. There was a film for outside, a film right. for tungsten, and a film for incandescent maybe? Or? No, indoor no. and outdoor. So incandescent and outdoor. That was, those were the two. And from there, you needed to figure out whether or not you had to put a filter in front of the lens to further adjust the color of the light, depending on what you were actually shooting. So if you were shooting indoor lights, Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, indoor film, but you were using fluorescent lights, fluorescent lights had a different color temperature than regular incandescent bulbs. And so you'd have to figure out what kind of filter you would need to drop in front of the camera to compensate for that too. But there was only two, there was only indoor and outdoor. So it was... Wow. Let's say 2,700 degrees uh, Kelvin for the indoor film and I think 5,500 degrees for the outdoor film. And that was it. Everything else had to be filtered. So uh, uh, white balance came a lot from video cameras because the camera would go into a situation and they put a piece of white paper in front of the camera. Yeah. And you basically tell the camera, this is white under this light. And the camera would say, okay, now I know what color, now I know where to... Uh, start um, recording colors from because this piece of paper that you're showing me is they're telling me that it's white and so I'm going to balance to that and make it white so that's why we we carry that over because essentially in some way digital photography is a carryover from video using the chips and whatnot so if I may just throw that in no that's that's very interesting actually the other thing about white balance you may see it in some applications as just something just called temperature yes so Oh, and this is to do with really nasty physics. (laughs) Well, no, it's if you study physics and you understand black body radiation, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean that's how I learned about white balance in my photography. I took a photography science class in college. We learned all about you know color uh, degrees Kelvin and the heating of a black body and temperatures and whatnot. What you can learn as a photographer is the temperature of the sun. The temperature of the sun. Well, it's about maybe between five Mr. and six thousand Kelvin. Mr. Science, maybe maybe a quick uh, reminder of what temperature would be, because I think people might think temperature is degrees, right? What does that have to do with heat and cold? So yeah. Can so you, if you, you have a perfect radiator, a perfect emitter, which is called a black body for historical reasons, I really am going to go into. <laughs> if you take, so we're familiar with the concept of you take a bit of metal, you heat it up, and it glows red, and you heat it up a bit more, and it changes color, and you heat it up a bit more, and it changes color. Well, if you take this perfect black body, it will respond very exactly to heat. And the frequency, so the amount of photons coming off that thing will have, if you graph them, so, you know, how many photons am I getting at this frequency? Almost none at this frequency, almost none at this frequency, almost none. And then you have this massive spike, and then almost none again. And that spike tells you, that spike sort of defines what's happening at that temperature in our perfect black body. And that spike will be a color. And so that's where we get this linkage between a color and a temperature, is that if you take this theoretic perfect black body and heat it to a certain temperature, it will always give off light out of certain color. And so that's where this comes from. And the sun is not a perfect black body, but it's pretty good as a black body emitter. So the sun's temperature really is approximately equal to the white balance setting for daylight on your camera. 
That is actually that has nothing. That has nothing to do with the actual surface temperature of the sun. Well, it does because the sun is an almost. It's it's actually the photosphere rather than the surface, the bit that shines okay. the brightest. And it's actually a nearly a perfect black body. So it really is almost black body radi- radiation. So it actually is related to the temperature of the sun, which is kind of cool. So the um, where we got the idea of doing daylight temperature mm-hmm. um, was, I'm going to get this completely wrong, but I'm going <laughs> to get it close enough, was a reading of the color temperature of the sun in Washington, D.C. at noon on some day. Oh, so was, they picked one. Like they picked all one you, place, yeah. Like old time is based on midnight GMT 1970 in, inside computers. So that's where we came up with the daylight temperature. Interesting. Now, of course, you could probably wiki it or, you know, Google it and find out a better explanation, but yeah. going by my old man brain. <laughs> no, that, that makes perfect sense. And yeah. ultimately, what you want to happen, if you have the white balance correct, so... When you're taking a photograph, there's light bouncing off the thing you're photographing and then being received by the camera. But when you're looking at a photograph, there's light being emitted by your computer screen. And if you take a red torch and you shine it off a white piece of paper and you measure the light that comes off that white piece of paper, it will be red. If you then project out of your computer screen red, it will not look anything like the thing you photographed. That is a very extreme example, but you see how that's just gone completely wrong. If you have your white balance correct, when your computer spits it out, it should look like the real thing that you photographed in the first place. And that will only happen at the moment, at the point where you get your white balance correct. And so the easiest way to get it correct is to buy yourself a little YBAL card like you recommended to me many years ago, and I absolutely adore it, which is a little piece of very carefully printed grey so that it is very accurately, exactly grey, completely neutral, no colour whatsoever. And you hold it up. You take your photograph, you take a photograph, and then you retake the photograph without the Y-Ball card in it. And then in Lightroom, you take the little eyedropper, and not just Lightroom, right? Any of these apps, the white balance adjustment will almost always have a little eyedropper. You drop the eyedropper onto the perfectly neutral thing, like your Y-Ball card or something else that happens to be neutral. And it will then move the sliders around to make the white balance be correct. And then you can take that white balance and set it on all your other photographs taken in the same light. And hey, presto, your colors are scientifically correct. Or what you can do, if I may add, mm-hmm. is many cameras allow you to set a preset white balance. And so you can then hold that card up while you're shooting mm-hmm. and create a preset white balance. by many, On an icon, you, you hit a preset button, and then you put a card in front of it, and you take a picture. But you're actually not recording a picture. Yes. You're just letting the camera see the white balance card and then it will record the color temperature and then save that as a preset. And so you can have that stored on your camera so that if you go to the same location mm-hmm. uh, or you're going to be shooting a lot in the same location, you have that white balance set. So that sort of saves you a step. From mm. And it also means in theory, you could post JPEG straight to the net and they'll look right. Right. Yes. And I think I need to add something about this because it's mm-hmm. really important for white balance to be set when you're shooting JPEGs, very much less so when you're shooting raw. Yeah, the thing I find, though, because most interfaces for white balance have a temperature and a tint, two sliders, which means you have a nasty amount of infinite possibilities of settings. And I find that infuriating to try guess the right white balance afterwards. Right. It drives me nuts. So I really like having a Y-Wild card to just do it for me. Yeah. I, I am also just saying that you can, if you perhaps make a mistake when you're shooting with JPEGs and you have the wrong white balance... 
it's going to be hell to pay later when you're trying to correct the colors. In fact, it will almost be impossible. Yeah, to, it will be. Try to fix it, right. Because what will happen is the app will have to guess because it doesn't have data of the other frequencies that were thrown away. And so the app will just guess. And they're, you know, they're not great at inventing reality apps because reality has its own unique and special way of being. And and the limitations with JPEG, you're going to be switching colors. It's never going to look the same as if you had not set the white balance correct to begin with. But in a raw file, white balance is really just a metadata tag. Yeah. So you can shoot your entire job with your white balance off if you're shooting raw and get back to your studio and say, uh-oh, I made a mistake and not have a heart attack because it is a total metadata tag that is attached to the um, the raw file. Yep. So you can later on change your white balance and n- not have to worry about it. But JPEGs, they're a problem. Yeah. Now, anyway. I was very careful to say that if you measure the light perfectly and then dial in all the settings correctly, you will have a scientifically perfect white balance. But maybe that's not what you want. Right? Artistically, this right. is an adjustment that you can use for artistic effect. Like, w- we talk about warmth and by warm we mean sort of more yellow and cold we mean sort of more blue and that happens to match with how these black bodies radiate but also it works quite well emotionally like an image that has been given a little bit more yellow than scientifically correct white balance will feel softer and warmer and friendlier than an image that you nudge the other way off scientifically perfect that you make too much blue light that will feel cool cold uninviting unfriendly even perhaps can i can i throw a wrench in the okay for a second the fact that we have these temperatures uh, so a warmer temperature would be a warmer color right Mm -hmm. but the temperature if you measure it using your black body it's a lower degrees Hmm. right so a black body that's radiating at 2700 degrees is more red than a black body radiating at 6,000 degrees, which is bluer and whiter. So it's interesting. It's the opposite. Oh, that's a good point. That she is completely backwards, yeah. Because it technically is, you know, it's hotter. You know, when something burns hotter and hotter, yeah. it starts to get white. And that means the temperature is actually higher. But we like to say warm temperatures because we think of fires and house and warmth and we think of snow and, you know, Bad Ice weather and, is colder. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting because one is really, te- you know. You're right, actually. Yeah, they're more inverted. It's more of an emotional thing. So those those settings that and you see when it doesn't say white balance, it says temperature. And you're sliding it back and forth and you're going from a warmer tone to a to a cooler tone. It has nothing to do with temperature anymore. It's a more of a, a an emotional response. Yes. And at that stage, so I, I will generally start my edit by getting it scientifically correct. And I will not hesitate at all to nudge it left or right a bit. And I'm sure there's a purist somewhere going, oh, no, this is terrible. But it's it's art, so you can do that. (laughs) Well, a purist who's doing that is not really taking into effect the um, creativity part. Exactly. I mean, maybe if you were were photographing a piece of art, you know, for – or anything for a record, then Mm. you would want something as accurate as the image that you're recording. So yeah. uh, you wouldn't want to change that for artistic purposes. You'd want it to be as accurate as possible. But most of us are photograph- photographing not for science but for fun. Well, yeah. I'm just throwing that in there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's uh, correct. Um, generally speaking, then, the next thing that you would meet after you've set the color 
uh, or the white balance or the colour temperature, whatever phrase your app of choice uses. Generally speaking, the next block you meet starts to mess around with the exposure, which is kind of defining how bright is how bright is bright and how dark is dark. So if you take a JPEG, you actually can't touch the slider without inventing data. So if you take a JPEG and you say, increase the exposure, it's just guessing values because it doesn't have any data for brighter than what is in there now. Or if you slide it the other way, it's guessing values because it doesn't have any extra data to pull in the other way. But if you're using a raw, that you can think of that slider as like a window across a strip of data that's wider than a JPEG can show. And as you move the slider, the window moves up and down. Sort of how I like to imagine. So you're basically choosing where in the range of available data you're going to put the middle of your image. So the the thing that's halfway bright, where do we put that halfway point? So you move the exposure slider until sort of the the image looks reasonable. And then I guess we move on to the other two much more confusing ones called the black point and the white point. But they're very, 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 very related to the exposure. So I said the exposure is for putting the middle. So this window, we can actually change the width of the window. So the exposure puts the middle of the window somewhere. The black point then moves the bottom of the window. And the white point moves the top of the window. And by using those three adjustments, what you're basically saying is, what range of the input will become the zero and the max of the output? And it doesn't have to be linear. So if you if you don't touch the black and white point, there's going to be a linear conversion. But if you move the black point in and the white point in, you might make it narrower. So you might say that what was only 100, you know, pixel values different, whatever whatever unit you're using, we're now going to let it represent all the 255 possibilities in our final image. Or we could go the other way and stretch it. I hope I'm making sense. <laughs> I'm so... I'm- Actually, okay, let me... I'm like, ooh. <laughs> okay, so imagine it... I like to think of this. So we, the histogram is a good place to think about this. So if you start off and you just put your, your... Your histogram shows you basically how many pixels in your image are at every possible brightness. So we'll say that there's 255 possible values for brightness. It's just a nice, easy number. Yeah, I like to, I like to call a histogram a population chart. Yeah, it is a population chart. So you start at zero. How many pixels in this image have a brightness value of zero? How many pixels have a brightness value of one? And so forth. And what you'll end up with is some sort of humpy graph. And usually there's a high point in the middle and it gets less down the edges because most of your image is probably sort of around the midpoint of your exposure. So generally speaking, after you've adjusted the exposure, you're going to have some sort of humpy graph where the middle of the hump is about the middle of the histogram. But if that hump is really narrow then you're going to have lots of empty space on your, histogra- on your histogram towards the darks and towards the brights. And what that means is that stuff that's as dark as possible is actually grey, and stuff that's as bright as possible is actually grey. And so the whole image will look flat and boring and dull. So what the white point does is it says, OK, let's call the bit where the humpy bit ends 0 and the bit where the other humpy bit on the other side ends 255. And all of a sudden, what was a dull grey becomes really black... And what was a dull grey, the other side becomes really white. And suddenly your image has contrast and it looks right. Because the histogram now fills... The humpy bit in the histogram fills the whole histogram. So there are some whites and some blacks. So it sounds like you're describing a contrast adjustment more than a... 
Well, it's not even a contrast adjustment. You're basically setting what is zero on our graph and what is 255 on our graph. And so if you set zero to be way, way, way less than the actual lowest value in the image, then the lowest value is a dirty grey. And if you set white to be way, way, way brighter than the lightest colour available, then that white is also a dull grey and the whole image is dull. So you just pull the two ends in to make white, you know, to make black line up with the darkest thing in your image and white line up with the brightest thing in your image. And then you just have a nicely distributed histogram, which will generally just look better. You know what kind of image that does not work with when you're taking a picture of a foggy day? Yeah, because that's that that is an image which has a really unnatural shaped histogram, so you've got to be very right. careful. So when you try to adjust a foggy shot by doing what you're saying, mm-hmm. you end up with a shot that shows no fog, which is kind of an interesting thing to play around with. It is actually, yeah, because Yeah, yeah. Um another place where I would have come across this whole concept was when I, I used to do astronomy. Um I did, way back when I was a grad student, I I did my failed PhD I never quite succeeded in getting on teaching kids astronomy through it was interesting anyway but we would be processing these astronomical images and those CCD sensors were noisy feckers <laughs> and they generally speaking would come out completely uncalibrated and if you didn't adjust the black and the white point you just saw nothing and as soon as you got those black and white points to line up with where the actual data is like a galaxy would pop out of the image <laughs> really? Wow. really I get our modern cameras are nowhere near as dumb as an astronomical CCD camera of 15 years ago. And I'm sure they've gotten better now in astronomy, but the, the CCD cameras back when I was using them, they were awful, awful things. Anyway, um, so the other place you wouldn't want this, like if you're trying to get a high-key photograph, what you actually want is to call stuff that's, near, that, that's nearly white, white. So you actually want to intentionally take the white point and pull it through so that a whole lump of your little histogram is actually chopped off. So you're going to say, I'm going to call something that's a little bit less less bright than white. I'm going to make it be white. And that means that everything that bright and brighter becomes pure white. And that's how you get that high-key look, which is basically you have someone's face and then the background is pure, pure white. Well, it's not because they have, like, the world's most perfect white background. It's because you just chop the back of the histogram off and make it be white. And if you want a silhouette... You're you're removing data. You're removing data. You're just saying everything beyond this point on the graph is considered white because I have said that the white point is here. So everything above that is now also called white. And you could do the same on the other end if you want to make a really nice silhouette. Just pull that black point right up and just start saying, yeah, I know that technically that's darker than black, but that doesn't exist. So call that black. Everything from here back is black. And then you get these really, really dark silhouettes. Because they're pure black. So there are two cases where you would not do the normal quote-unquote thing, where you sort of get the black and white points to line up with the edges of your data on the little histogram. Mm-hmm. So, Which is often why you might get frustrated when you use the auto button on a lot of these programs. Right, because the auto button... auto adjustment because it's not smart and it's going to make decisions in the wrong direction. So it might see a high-key image and say, well... Uh-oh. <laughs> it's very bright, and so it might try to darken the image. Yeah, so it, it will yeah, do... It against what you want to do. Yeah, it will do what I described, right? It will, look at the gra- it will look at the data and say, ah, where is the average? The average value is here. Adjust my exposure slider until the average value is in the middle of the histogram. Where is the lowest point of the tail? Adjust the black point to the lowest point of the tail. Where is the highest point of the other tail? Adjust the white point to the highest point of the other tail. And so it will just atomically... The auto button will atomically do what I've described there, based purely on mathematics... But that doesn't allow for art. Right. 
it's, I, it's often a frustrating thing yes. to, to try to use the auto settings. Yeah. So those three buttons are very often, although not always, because um, in, in Aperture, those three buttons are together because they belong together. But in Lightroom, they're not. They're close together, but they're not actually next to each other, and they really probably should be. Well, are they top? They're top down, aren't they? Well, no. It's exposure, contrast, highlight, shadows, whites, blacks, which is a very strange order. The mathematician and scientist in me is not happy with this, <laughs> but uh, the photographer in me is perfectly happy to just adjust. <laughs> yeah. So I will set exposure, then white, whites and blacks, and then I'll start messing around with the other sliders there. Uh, so contrast is a sort of a blunt tool for, well, basically it'll make dark things darker and bright things brighter. That's what it'll do. And it'll do so in a not particularly intelligent way. So it's just a pretty basic mathematical algorithm. If it's dark, make it darker. If it's bright, make it brighter. It can help for certain things, but it is it is a kind of brute force yeah, because uh, we're going to come later to way better tools for controlling what we as humans would call contrast. Ways, way better ways of controlling contrast than that slider. That slider is one I almost never touch because it's just such a crude implement. <laughs> uh, highlights and shadows then we should talk about. So the highlight slider allows you to, if you imagine our histogram, the highlight slider allows you to say that everything near the white side of the histogram, we either nudge it up a little or nudge it down a little from where it really is. So if you brighten the highlights, you're nudging everything to uh, sort of at the right edge of the histogram, just push everything up a little. All the pixels that fall in that range get a little bit brighter than they are. Or if you pull the highlights the other way, you make all the pixels in that range a little bit darker than they are. And shadows is the mirror image on the other side of the histogram. So you nudge the pixels that are dark a little bit brighter or a little bit darker than they are in the original. So that's kind of all there is to those guys. Now, what's also located in every every program I've used recently, very nearby to what we've been talking about so far, are sort of the more clever modern sliders that didn't used to exist 15, 20 years ago. Actually, uh, sorry. Can I go back to the... You uh, can. <laughs> I want to go back to the uh, highlights and shadows mm -hmm. for a second here. Um that was something that was actually added to Lightroom relatively late in its life. Um, oh, okay. It, it didn't start with the original versions, and it wasn't in original versions of Photoshop. But what ends up happening is that, especially with RAW files, there's, a, there's still a lot of data in a RAW file that ends up living in that, uh, in that histogram towards the right. Mm. And the highlights slider helps you to... What looks like on the surface an, uh, an image where the lights are what we call clipped, which means there's no detail or data there. Yeah. There's actually a little bit of data that still lives there. Um, camera sensors are very sensitive to the high end of the uh, uh, yes. spectrum. They're, they're more sensitive to the light parts. Yes. So, uh, you know, we have this thing called exposed to the right where you take a picture with a raw file and you tend to overexpose it slightly but not too much. And yes. then you use a program like Lightroom to actually recover detail in those highlights. So in a in a JPEG, it's not as good because the data has already been sort of baked in. Yes. But in a RAW file, there's information that we don't usually have access to, and the highlight slider helps us get that back. So if you are looking at a picture, in fact, I'm looking at one right now, 
and the sky in this picture is it literally looks white. And if I scroll down the uh, highlights button, I'm actually being able to see a building appear in the white area, whereas before it just looks like it was a white nothing. So there's information there. So the highlight slider does that. The shadows is you're right, like you said, is sort of the opposite of that. But highlights is. Yeah, and the shadows button you tend to have to be more more gentle with because what you're going to do is pull in noise. And if you're wondering why that is, it's simply because of the physics, since we're being all nerdy today. It's because of the physics of a sensor, right? A sensor, the way all these photosensitive sensors in our modern cameras work is that every time a photon of light hits a pixel in the sensor, some electrons get thrown into that pixel. And at the end of the exposure the amount of electric charge in each pixel is used to calculate how bright that pixel is. But heat causes electrons to bounce around. And none of us take photographs at absolute zero. We all live in the real world, so we're all... There is some heat everywhere. Even on a cold day in Alaska, there is heat compared to absolute zero. Quite a lot of it. And that means that there are random little electrons jumping into the bucket along with the electrons that were caused by the actual photons of light. So there's some stray data. So at the low end of, you know, dark pixels, what you're saying is, I've counted five plus or minus three in this dark pixel. Therefore, it's very prone to noise. But on the other end of the scale, I've counted 5,000 plus or minus three. Well, the plus or minus three makes no bloody difference there. So that's why it's easy to get detail from the highlights because it's not drowned out by the little bit of noise. So the noise is constant. It's always, say, plus or minus three. So plus or minus three off a big number or plus or minus three off a small number. Now, obviously, you're just making these numbers up, but to, you get the concept, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why the darks, that's why the shadows are so hard to get anything useful from is because they're really affected. You know, the signal and the noise are far too close to each other in size, whereas at the high end, the signal is way bigger than the noise. And so you can pull out data or detail. Oh, I like that. Hmm. And it is, I like to think of it as little buckets. It's just an array of buckets, and every bit of light that comes in throws some electrons into the bucket. And at the end of the exposure, you count how many electrons are in every bucket. And there's just a few electrons just jiggling about because it's warm. And they, they are your noise. And we're getting better and better and better at minimizing the amount of these, uh, photo, uh, these, these electrons that are jumping about. But we're still a long way from getting rid of them completely. Yeah, I think what ends up happening for some people is that, uh, you know, when you have your camera set to show you when highlights are blinking, mm -hmm. so uh, the blinky, the blinkies, we call yes, them. Yes, I'm very fond of the blinkies. The blinkies, uh, and people tend to make exposure adjustments based on those blinkies, not fully understanding that, and will end up tending to underexpose the picture yes. based, based on the blinkies. And you end up with then the issue of when you're coming back to... Lightroom or whatever processing program you're using, and you're trying to say, "Well, you're looking at the picture." I was like, "It well, it's it's too dark." Uh, yeah, all these well, shadows yeah, are just black. You underexposed it because you were working on the blinkies, and then you try to recover those shadows because you underexposed it. You end up with a lot more noise in your picture. Yeah. So, another reason to get a light meter, by the way. <laughs> yeah, you have me convinced. I might want one of those. A because as a scientist, I think they're just cool. Um, it helps for certain things. Yes. It's, have, you can never have too much apparatus and too much data. Right. That's my Although I think the camera meters are getting better. These yeah, days. but they're, they're, only, they're measuring the light bouncing off the thing, which means if the thing is white, it's throwing it all off. Right. It's a reflective light. They're yeah. 
they're reading, not incident light, which is the actual value of the light that's falling onto the subject, which can be helpful in a lot of circumstances. Well, it means your exposure will be more accurate because if you're, if you're measuring the incident light, First, if what you're photographing is dark, if you measure the reflected light, it'll be as if it's way, way, way less bright than it is, and it'll come out a nasty gray because the camera will go far too bright. Whereas if you know the incident light and you take the picture, well, then the black thing will look black and the white thing will look white, and it'll all be good. And yet, I just recently, after being on with Allison uh, Mm -hmm. to chat, and we talked about light meters, when we were done, I took my camera out and I decided to take a picture of something white. Uh, I first mm-hmm. I measured the uh, light with my light meter. Yeah. And got the exposure. And then I took, um, I used the camera's meter to take a picture and it took it very accurately, surprisingly. I was expecting the white object to turn gray and right. it actually was pretty white. So. Yeah, the, the artificial intelligence in there to try guess what kind of scene it is is getting better. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work all the time, but there are times when it. Well, it does work, which I was a little bit surprised at because I guess and it depends on the uh, manufacturer and how they've programmed their light meters. Yeah. Um, so you can always come across a camera that doesn't have a very good programming in the light meter and find yourself in the need of a, an external light meter, which would help. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I very much like the concept of an external light meter. So you have me convinced I need to spend money on one of those. Yeah. You don't have to spend too much money. <laughs> okay. There's some so, really nice ones that are cheap. <laughs> So highlights and shadows are relatively, quote-unquote, modern adjustments, and they're a way of pulling. So by, by darkening the highlights, you can get back some more detail that was lost. So you can start, and again, if you have a raw image, you're basically pulling stuff that you was off the data that was off the edge of our sliding window. You're pulling it back into the window, and it's not being invented. It's not being guessed at because it's sitting there just outside of the window. So if you pull it into the window, it becomes visible. Now, some other modern sliders. Now, these tend to have lots of different names, but um, one of my favorites is the Clarity Slider, <laughs> right? Which is just like really brainy contrast. Well, no, that's not quite right. It's no. it's like a brainy? combination of it's intelligent contrast and sharpening, sort of. What it does is it finds areas of change and then highlights, the, then makes the change more dramatic by applying contrast to those areas where there's something going on. Like an edge of something. Or a fold in a dress. Or a line on some tiles. Or a line between some bricks or some texture or something. It's finding something where there's a change happening and then it, make, it accentuates the change by increasing local contrast. Would you also? I would also call it uh, mid-tone contrast adjustment because it really is adjusting a lot of the stuff more in the mid areas than it is on the on the two ends of the histogram, the lights and the darks. Yeah. Now the artistic effect of this is is, is questionable. <laughs> I do. Oh, no, I disagree. Uh, <laughs> oh. In okay. small amounts. Now this is the key. This is one of those sliders where less is more, but zero is too little. Uh, <laughs> I, I, like a little nudge of the clarity slider will just make everything look that little bit more like it is. But if you go bonkers with it, you end up with, well, you end up in silly season. Like you end up in almost like an HDR look where you have silly ghosting and stuff going on because you're completely overdoing it. But I like in Lightroom, I like, I find that Lightroom doesn't want to go any smaller than a click of about seven, right? You know, just the tiniest little nudge. And Mm, I I find that pleasing and certainly on the kind of photographs i take i pretty much always dial in just like you know seven or maybe even three or sometimes ten but never like i think the first click if you just click is 20 right never that much 
let alone mm. going up to 50 or 80 or whatever well, else. Well, anything with a lot of detail in it, you know, if you're shooting landscapes and stuff like that, I can see clarity being helpful. You absolutely probably do not want to use it when you take a picture of a person unless you're going for some really specific kind of look. But most people do not look that great with a lot of clarity added to it. In fact, in Lightroom, you can go the opposite direction with clarity, which is kind of nice. On the sliders, you can go... Yeah, it goes left and right. Minus yeah. clarity. And minus clarity with people tends to soften out their skin. So it tends to look a little bit better, more flattering, yes. I should say. Maybe not better. Yeah, because any wrinkle is an area of change. Yeah. And so if you make it more clear, then you're, you're highlighting the wrinkles. Right. If you make it less clear, you're unhighlighting the wrinkles, whatever, whatever the opposite of highlight is. Right. Low light? It helps also make the picture look more foggy in a way. You can make yeah. when you go negative on the clarity. Yes. I, I find it useful occasionally, but not for every picture. And uh, I'm very fond of it. But just a little bit, right? Like, like, like salt in cooking, a little goes a long way. Yeah. Another one I absolutely adore, right? So I find saturation another one of those blunt tools like the contrast slider. And so and I almost never touch the saturation slider because I find all it's just doing is unintelligently making all the color more. And that tends to make it look plasticky, fake, artificial, garish. Every other negative word I can think of, I can throw in there. I, I like To me, just dialing up the saturation almost always makes a picture look terrible. You're being oh. silent. Does that mean you disagree? Uh, no, I'm thinking about this, but I agree. You agree? Saturation, it, it has its place for certain types of work, but it is a blunt force instrument because it raises all the colors equally. Yes, so, which is why there's a modern, more intelligent equivalent, which I do, which I very, very, very much love, which is called vibrancy, which adjusts the colors in such a way that they they don't become garish. And, well, if you go too far, of course they will, um, but they they don't become fake and artificial looking. They just become more vibrant, more you know. I sort of like you know plus plus, you know, sort of uh, you know green think, only more. I think vibrance works on. By looking at the picture and seeing which colors are already saturated and tends to leave those alone and tends to bring the other ones up. But again, yes. not as not as dramatically as saturation. And I think vibrance is also tuned to skin tones so that it doesn't raise those. So Yeah, so you don't get that really skin, weird oompa loompa. Yeah. Pink skin, whatever. It doesn't it's I think that's programmed into vibrancy. So it, yeah. it does leave skin tones alone. So that when you're working with portraits, you can boost up the color of the clothing, but without affecting the person's skin. Before it was at, before I started using Aperture, which has an equivalent of vibrance. I can't remember what they call it. They don't call it vibrance. They call it something else. But it does the same thing. Uh, I used to use a technique, a way way older technique called an LAB color boost, where you pop the whole image into the LAB color space, then you use a curves adjustment to adjust the A and the B, I think, but not the L or something like that. And then you collapse it back in and the end result is that you end up with something very like Vibrance where the the colour is more but not in the way saturation does it. But thankfully those days are gone because that was yeah. that was awfully convoluted. And I couldn't even explain why that works. I just I found a tutorial on the internet, it showed me how to do it and I did it and it looked good. But I don't know why it works. Um the next one we should probably talk about is one that I think confuses a lot of people, so I want to be very careful how I explain it, which is the good old-fashioned curves adjustment. So the curves interface looks like a graph, and it looks like a graph because it is. Um, 
along the bottom axis, you have our scale from the histogram. So the left bottom, the left side of the bottom axis means zero or black, and the right side means white or two hundred and fifty-five, whatever, whatever full white is. And the other axis is how much to scale it by, which means that keeping everything as it is, is an exact 45-degree line. Which is why when you start off, what you see is a straight diagonal line. What that means is, leave every pixel the way it was. The input shall be exactly the same as the output for every single possible pixel value on your image. So that's why the neutral form of a curves adjustment is a perfectly diagonal line at exactly 45 degrees. Now, what you can then do is click on that line and pull it up or down. So if you click on the bottom part of that, if you click on any part of that line and pull it down, it means that all pixels at that color, at that brightness value in the image will get darkened. Or if you push it up, they'll get brightened. So if you click near the bottom and you pull down, you're darkening the shadows. If you pull up, you're brightening the shadows. If you click near the top and pull up, you're brightening the highlights. Or pull down, you're darkening the highlights. If you click in the middle, then you're pulling up the midtones or down the midtones. And you can do many clicks... And therefore, you can say, I want the midtones down, the shadows up, and the highlights down. Or, you know, basically, the sky's the limit, right? Yeah, you can remap all your tones using just the curves box. Yep. Now, this is... So, remember I said I hate the the contrast adjustment? Because I think it's Mm -hmm. a blunt, ugly tool. I absolutely adore something called an S-curve in the curves adjustment. So, you just click near the bottom of of the diagonal line, and you pull down a little... And you click near the top and you pull up a little. And that has the effect of boosting contrast because it makes dark things darker and bright things brighter. But you have way more control because it's not... The two don't go together. They go independently because you have two control points. And so you can really make the image look right by moving your shadows adjustment. You know, so you click down near the bottom corner and you're to the right a bit, to the left a bit, up a bit, down a bit until it looks just right. And then you do the top one to the right a bit, to the left a bit until it looks just right. And so because you have those two control points, one controlling the highlights and one controlling the shadows, you just have so much more control over contrast. And the whole thing is just, I, I just find that way more pleasing way to make my contrast look the way I want. And... The the question I have mm-hmm. <laughs> is, why would we use this instead of levels? Well, now we didn't get into levels yet. We didn't get into levels. I probably that's probably an oversight on my behalf because I always have them turned off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a, a yield levels adjustment would provide you basically it's like a curves adjustment. Only someone has pre decided what where the dots are on the curve. So if you have a really a simple curves adjustment, there will be three dots. One dot for the shadows, one dot for the midtones, and one dot for the highlights. And so the three sliders in the levels control the height of that dot up or down on your S-curve, on your curves adjustment. And Aperture used to let you have uh, midpoints as well, which actually meant that you put another point halfway between all the existing points. So that's whatever amount of extra points that is. But basically, all the levels adjustment is is a curves adjustment where the place where the curve is has been decided for you. Or the place where the dot is has been decided for you. And as you drag up and down, you're basically moving the dot on a curves adjustment up or down. And then on some levels adjustments, you can actually slide side to side, which then means you're actually moving the point on the curves adjustment. So what it is, is a really unintuitive curves adjustment. So you're saying you have a lot 
more fine-tuned control when you're using the curves. Yeah, and it's more intuitive because it's mathematically it makes sense what it's doing. You're saying I want these ranges of pixels to be darker or brighter, and it's it just yeah, it's more fine-tuned control, and it's more obvious what's going on. And also, if you're using the levels adjustments, you may be making a really sharp curve. Right? And generally speaking, sharp curves will have a weird effect on your image. And you won't notice that you're doing it because you can't see the shape of the curve because all you see is these three sliders. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're doing it on an actual curve, you'll see that you're being stupid because the curve has suddenly got really sharp kinks in it. Right. And a sharp kink in a curve is almost always going to result in a weird-looking image, which may be artistically what you want. Weird may be good, but probably on average not. Right. So when you we're, – we're looking at Lightroom right mm-hmm. now, I guess, and you have the ability to work on all three channels. So the red, yes. green, and blue is basically the luminosity, your brightness yes. of your picture. But you also can work on each individual color channel separately. So yes. – one of the ways to um, fix color problems uh, with your image is not to try to do the, um, the color, you know, color balance or anything like that. You go into the tone curve and you start to play with the different channels. So Ooh. if for some reason you shot in some place and there was a lot of red light and you find you want to cut down the amount of red light, but you can't do that through the white balance tool. You're liable to you can you can fix it by going into the tone curves and then working on the red channel to start to remove some of that red light. Oh, or, I just had a really good. Idea. I just realized what? where this could help me with because something that Aperture had that Lightroom doesn't have is the ability to take an eyedropper, drop it on any color you want, and then change the saturation and the brightness. Of that Lightroom has specific, that too. Co- it, doesn't, it doesn't work the same way, and I haven't made it. I haven't managed to use it to filter out light pollution, for example, hmm. which I used to be able to do really easily on Aperture. But the other thing, the the one that just immediately jumped to mind here is a really common situation. So you're doing an HDR, which means that some of your image is probably in shadow, and some of your image is probably not in shadow. So it might, you might have some sort of foreground that's in shadow, and then a blue sky in the background, and so. The blue you've white balance on the blue sky, so the blue sky looks right, but that means that everything that's in shadow is now too blue, but it's also dark. So if you take all the blue out, the blue sky looks wrong, and if you leave all the blue in, the shadows look long. But if you use the, a curves adjustment on the blue channel only, you could reduce the amount of blue in the shadows, but leave the blue in the highlights alone, which means your sky stays right and your shadows go right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I've got to give that a go. That's fabulous. It's a yeah. great idea. It's one of the strengths about Photoshop, too. I mean, Photoshop's got a curves adjustment, and it's one of the best ways to get rid of color casts. It saves, you a lot of, it saves you a lot of grief when you, when you use that and trying to figure out any other adjustment. Cool. Um, the other one I think we should talk about... Um, actually, I guess we should talk about the difficult one, which is sharpening. Mm. Um, I am always wary of sharpening because it, if done too early, it will have terrible side effects. It should be the last, last, last thing you do before printing or exporting. And I'm, al- I'm always afraid of 
too too much will make the image look ick. So I, I tend to err on the side of as little as possible. But there, that's just because like, I'm afraid of it. Yeah, there's... If you think of sharpening, kind of break it down into three steps, three types of sharpening. Mm-hmm. First is input sharpening. When you're uh, importing a picture into Lightroom, it often puts in uh, a built-in amount of sharpening to compensate for the anti-aliasing filter that are in most cameras that tend to soften the picture a little bit so that we avoid those moray patterns and whatnot. Yes. Um, Some cameras don't have them now. Some cameras, newer cameras are starting to come out without this anti-aliasing filter. So the images from those cameras, like for instance, my Fuji X100T does not have an anti-aliasing filter. uh, So how are they managing the, the fact that each pixel is only picking up one color or have they somehow managed to stack the pixels one behind the other? How do you mean? Well, the reason we need to have these anti-aliasing patterns is because every pixel on a traditional DSLR can only be red, green, or blue. And so you have to scatter these red, greens, and blue everywhere. And if you didn't do... and If there wasn't an anti-aliasing filter and you have the pixels next to each other, so a green one, a red one, a blue one, a green one, a red one, a blue one, every edge would have color banding on it. So you they if it intentionally add some blur to mix the colors up at the edges so you don't get these horrible bands which is why that filter is there on traditional dslrs and then when you sharpen later you're sort of you're de-blurring that blur but it's already been averaged together so you don't get the color banding back but if your camera doesn't have one of these then it must be doing something else to stop color banding so it must be doing something clever with the pixels themselves must be some cool electronics in there the fuji the pixels on the sensor are a lot more randomized so they're not Red, green, blue, red, green, blue. They're, ah, okay. They're That'll do it. A little. So that might have some... No, that will do it. That'll have the effect. same effect, right, of blurring the color changes. Yeah, but there's a lot of Nikons that are out now. They first were coming out, I think it was... I can't remember the first Nikon that came out without the anti-aliasing filter. It might have been the 800, the D800. Mm. And they came out with one, like, quote-unquote, for astrophotography. Oh, so I can see why well, that would be important, yeah. Right. But now it's starting to show up in a lot more cameras. Now other people are, you know, they're not even giving you the option of a camera with a, a filter on or a filter off. Some of them will not have the filter on at all. In fact, I think all the Fuji X cameras don't have the anti-aliasing filter, and I think a lot of the newer high-end Nikons. I can't speak for Canon because I don't know Canon. but Someone was working on technology to stack the red, green, and blue pixels under each other instead of side by side, and any such sensor would obviously immediately cease to need any of this carry-on because every pixel is picking up all three colors now. Yeah, I can't remember who it was so, though, but it was a good idea, and I hope I'm hoping it succeeded. So get back to my sharpening thing. Yes, sorry. So sharpening <laughs> on the way in, and that's I guess sharpening that's on the way done in by default, right? That's not even something you think about. That's just well, d- done it's by, default. by default. But I'm, I am actually I'm taking a look at a Fuji picture now. Uh, where's the sharpening detail? Yeah, it's actually applied. It applies the sharpening to every raw file that comes in on Lightroom. So on, mm. even on my Fuji camera, which doesn't have an aliasing filter, uh, anti-aliasing filter on, it's applied tw- uh, an amount of 25 sharpening. So that's a default set in Lightroom. Basically, right. it's to compensate for this softness that the anti-aliasing filter built, you know, yes. uh, makes. So that's your input sharpening. And then you have creative sharpening. So okay. when you're working on a picture, you'd want to decide maybe there's some parts of the picture that you want to have a little bit sharper than others. So you might right. add a little, like perhaps you've got a rock, maybe in a in a in a pond. Yes. And the rock has got a lot of detail on it, and you might want to 
highlight the sh you might want to sharpen that rock a little bit more than the water. So you consider that, you know, creative sharpening. So you would use then a brush then to brush in right. sharpness. Yeah. You somehow lo you localize the sharpening. And then you have what's called output sharpening. So you're sharpening depending on whether or not you're going to go to a JPEG to the web or you're going to sharpen for a print or whatever. Um, and those are the three it, 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 do I remember correctly that depending on the kind of print, you may apply a different amount of sharpening? Like if it's like an inkjet that might bleed a little, you might over sharpen because you know that the yeah. natural process of paper and ink becoming friends will mush it a bit. Right. Every printer you might have to profile differently for a different kind of sharpening. But yeah, sometimes, in fact, what's really interesting is that when you're sharpening for a print, you can tend to over sharpen. It would look horrible on your screen. Right. But when you send it to the printer, the over sharpening actually helps and the picture looks beautiful. So, but what we have to sort of remind people is that sharpening is not going to make a out of focus picture. Yeah. <laughs> Sharp it's, it's not magic folks. <laughs> yeah. If your picture is out of focus or your subject's out of focus, sharpening is not going to help at all. For the most part, I find that if my, if, if um, I, I shoot street photography, so I'm shooting people. And if I'm just a hair off in my, my focus, sometimes the sharpening can help. Because basically sharpening is just – it's kind of like a nifty contrast uh, filter. It's basically making these little edges in our pictures a little bit more defined. That's what we think mm. of as sharpening. That's what our eyes think of as sharpening. So it's kind of adding some contrast at a really teeny tiny level. Uh, what I so love, if I'm trying to get – What I love and it's sort of one of those you know, nerd ironies – the algorithm used for sharpening is called an unsharp mask. And an unsharp mask makes things more sharp. Who thought this up? What genius thought that was a good well, way to name things? That was something left over from the old film days. And film being motion picture film. Ah, okay. There, you, everybody can look that up. It's really kind of fun. But it's basically, in order to sharpen something, you did have to create this mask that was less sharp. And then you put that in front of the image and somehow it made it more sharp. I don't remember the physics behind that, but... It's something yes, to do with subtracting the less sharp version from the sharp version or something yeah. weird like that. Yeah, and if everybody, anybody owns Photoshop, you can find all these legacy filters. Uh, they're, they're tucked away in there still. So people who want to use the unsharp mask can use it, but then there's more things like smart sharpen and sharpen sharpen than like regular normal words. <laughs> but some people like the old ways, and so Photoshop keeps that stuff around for those people. Which but it should. I mean, is you know, yeah, if, you, sure. if you understand the mathematics of the old way and you're used to it that way, well, why not? Have at it. Sorry, I didn't want to step on you about sharpening, if there was anything else. Well, I, I, I mean, me and sharpening are not particularly well acquainted, so I'll, I'll leave it to you to decide if there's anything else we need to throw in. Oh. The nice thing about Lightroom with sharpening is that you can actually determine, you could tell Lightroom what to sharpen. There's ways of... Um, masking it from areas like the sky, oh. so there's a little there's a little um, slider on that where you can tell it to basically sharpen places where there's a lot of detail and not sharpen places where there's not. So, like for instance, a sky. You don't necessarily always want to sharpen a sky because hey, there's nothing there. Maybe it might be right. blue. And if you sharpen, you also remember when you sharpen an image, you sharpen all the noise that's in the picture. And so you right. may not want to have a grainy picture or a grainy sky. So by sliding the masking slider back and forth, you can sort of target where that sharpening is going to affect the, the image on a, on a global scale. 
Oh, that's that's actually very good because th- that's one of the things I used to always make me afraid of sharpening was that any sort of noise you had would, ugh, you know, it just, yeah, it looks horrible. Yeah. One of the cool things is if you're in Lightroom and you hold down the Option key while sliding the masking button, that you can see where the sharpening is going to take effect. So the areas that turn black in the picture will not be sharpened. And the areas that turn white will be sharpened. And you can slide it back and forth. And so you basically see the sort of like this black and white drawing of your image. Cool. When you're doing that. Just gives you a better idea of what's going to get affected and what's not. Excellent. Great tip, that. Lightroom tip. Excellent. Okay. Well, the last sort of brick or whatever we call these in Lightroom that I want to talk about. And, and if you have any more, by all means, throw them in. Uh, but the last one I want to talk about is a brick that has that is the reason myself and Lightroom are becoming firm friends, is the lens corrections brick, or block, or region. So this is something that Aperture never developed. This I used to use... Which an is ex- unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. I used to use an external tool, which meant there was... Always had to go out to a plug-in, which meant you always had to bake in all your other adjustments and then send it out. Whereas you can do it non-destructively here in uh, Lightroom, which is such a great advantage over Aperture. But if you ever wonder whether what this does, well, I guess this does two things. So, in an ideal world, a lens would not cause any distortions. However, in the physical world, lenses most certainly do cause distortions. No matter how much money they put in by having 20 kabillion bits of glass with different refractive indices that all in theory compensate for each other, they're never perfect. There's always some sort of distortion, like maybe a little bit of barrel distortion or whatever. So Lightroom, for a start, has a whole bunch of profiles built in, and so it will just simply use your EXIF data to figure out what lens it was, if possible. And it will remove the known barrel distortion, etc., from the lens. I just basically fix what we know the lens has broken, which is already spectacularly useful. And that already on its own is just cool. But the really cool stuff comes in when something in your photograph is at an angle to the sensor in the back of the camera. And if you want to see an extreme example of this, go to your nearest tall building, lean back, and take a picture. This effect will be magnified if you're using a wide-angle lens, but it's always there. And the bottom of the building will be an awful, awful, awful lot wider than than the top of the building. And with a wide-angle lens, it might even bow, which is even more ick. And you can use these lens correction adjustments to make that building square again. So it looks like a proper architectural photograph, which would have in the olden days been done by tilting the sensor to be parallel to the building using tilts and shifts. And now you can do that with sliders in an awful lot of photograph editing tools. And in fact, I'm 99% sure it was in Affinity Photo as well, which is a much cheaper tool than Lightroom, and it already does it, which is damnable cool. Well, you also, you do have to add mm-hmm. that, and this is what you talked about at the beginning, Though that the computer then is going to be adding data to the, or you're going to have to crop, or you're going to have to crop. Yeah, because when you bend the top in, there's nothing there. Right, (laughs) Right? there is no more data there. So either you can use some sort of intelligent fill and guess, invent, make up the data, but in a realistic way, or you crop to the new narrowest point, which might not always work depending on how you shot the picture. But yes. It's a pretty smart little part of Lightroom. Um, and, you know, I 
wondering what took them so long to get it. But I, I imagine that the math is harder than I thought it would be. Well, it's very computationally intensive to do this kind of stuff. I mean, it, yeah. the, the fact that you can just do it with a slider is kind of cool. Yeah. I found that sometimes for certain kind of shots, I will use the uh, sliders in the lens uh, corrections to actually distort the picture even more. Like I find, oh really? To go the other way yeah, with to, it to create a uh, you know a fisheye effect or something like that um, on oh, certain wow. pictures. You know, yeah. Again, not everything is for you know correcting. We use these tools because you might find something really creative to do with it, and why not? You know, if it makes your picture fit the way you want the picture to look, then so be it. Nothing has to be perfect all the time. I, did you know that never even occurred to me? But you're so right. Of course, of course, yeah. we can. I mean, we can intentionally do all sorts of quote-unquote wrong things scientifically because they look good. Right. So why not? Excellent. I find the lens corrections a fun place to do that. Yeah. Now, I use this stuff a lot because if I'm doing astronomical stuff, I want to, I, I tend to like the astronomical stuff where you're capturing a large constellation or whatever, you know, so a big area of the sky, and I want something in the foreground to be interesting, which means I'm shooting wide. I'm shooting with... A 10 millimeter lens, usually. And I want the sky, so that means I'm always tilted up by 45 degrees or so. And I'm shooting with a wide angle lens. Without those sliders, all of those images look stupid. They just look <laughs> awful. They're absolutely terrible. So you intentionally shoot, uh, you, you, you make sure that anything you want is not too close to the edge of the frame because when you use these sliders, you're going to start losing bits of data. And then you can do such beautiful things with wide-angle lenses, even though you're mm -hmm. tilting them up. And also, these sliders are helpful. This is when it helps to have a camera with a lot of megapixels. Yes. Uh, again, not to be a megapixel, you know, war person here, but like the actual, you know, if you had a camera with 50 megapixels, you have a lot more data for Lightroom to mess around with. So you can... Like you said, you can keep this extra room on the side of the picture yeah, uh, and then crop into it when you're using these sliders and you're not losing that much data. But if you have a, you know, an 8 or 10 megapixel camera and you're trying to do some of the stuff, you're going to end up with a file that is a lot smaller than what you started with because you just mm. didn't have the data there to start with. So this is where having big megapixel cameras can be helpful if you are intending to do work like this. Uh, you're going to do a lot of cropping. If you're doing architectural photography and you want to correct for what you were yeah. talking about before, if you want to correct for that, if you had a 50 megapixel camera, yeah, you're having, you know, you're going to shoot down and uh, create an angle and then correct it. Um, then you'll end up with a maybe a 30 megapixel file after all said and done. Yeah, and after you basically, really not wasted, but how, after you have used that extra data to give you a really nice file at the lower resolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not wasted. You've You've used all that data to allow you to correct for all these distortions. Exactly. But it's gone now. You've spent it. <laughs> yeah. Which is perfectly fine. You know, spending some data in order to get a nice output, which is, again, yeah, you know, I'm not obsessed with having giganto megapixels, but there are times when it's really nice to have the comfort of having more data than you need. Yeah. And again, it's one of those things when you're thinking about buying a camera, really think about what you're going to be doing with it. If you're going to be doing a lot of cropping and stuff like that, maybe you need to go with a camera with a lot of megapixels. But if you're not, then... You can live with, you know, 16 or 20 megapixels and be fine. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. 
Um, something which we, I think we actually slightly skipped over by mistake is the rotation is also something that is generally near the top of the list. And that's another place where having more megapixels is better because, again, you end up creating these voids around the edges as you rotate, which, generally speaking, the apps will crop out. Right. So, so yeah, the more There's you rotate, the more the your image shrinks. There's a setting in Photoshop that so can constrain crop. When you select that, it'll automatically crop out that dead space yeah. that's created when you... Uh, tilt to rotate an image and if you don't take that box well then you have to do some sort of magic fill or something to put something into that dead space because it will be dead space right you might as well have the uh, constrained crop on for the most part yeah. i think yeah yeah un- unless you've made a terrible mistake and you've you didn't leave yourself enough room and you're having to rotate then maybe magic fill is the answer instead of the auto crop but yeah 99 percent of the time i think the auto crop is your friend yeah also, there's a similar checkbox on all the lens correction stuff. There's a, contra- there's a constrain crop bo- checkbox in that part of Lightroom as well. Okay, is there anything I haven't covered that you think we really need to talk about? Uh, no, as I'm going through the... I- I've oh, sort of been scrolling down through Lightroom, which is why I'm pretty sure I've done an okay job. Yeah, and what I'm also doing is looking at... Uh... I'm looking at Photoshop Express on my iPad. <clears throat> oh, it very literally good. just it only has sliders. Yes. But it has a lot of the same things. Uh clarity, sharpen, reduce noise. Uh we didn't talk about We that didn't talk about noise reduction and we probably should, yeah. Yeah. I mean <laughs> noise reduction is either you know, do as little as possible. If you do too much it's gonna look like it's going to look terrible. It's always a compromise, right? I have yet to come across... Like, every noise reduction app pretend, tells you it's going to be perfect. They're all lying to a greater yeah. or lesser extent. Because yeah. the way it works is you make the image intentionally fuzzy and then you sharpen it in the hope that you're only going to sharpen real edges and not resharpen the noise back in. Yeah. But that means that the textures are always going to get a bit mushed up. Things are always going to be a bit off. So... Like what you were saying with the sharpening, uh, limiting your noise reduction to only the places where noise is a problem might actually be a good idea. So if you have an image with foliage and grass and stuff, which can look really horrible when noise reduced, because you know, leaves on trees just start mm-hmm. to look wrong. But a sky looks really wrong with noise. So if you do the noise reduction, you know, using layers or whatever in such a way that you're only reducing the noise in the sky and on rivers or, you know, on water surfaces or things that just look wrong with noise, I just leave the noise in the stuff like the trees and the grass because, trust me, they look better with the noise in than with the noise reduction applied. Well, you're probably not going to notice it either that much. Yeah, because they're just random noisy things anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whereas the effect of removing the noise is very noticeable on grass and trees and things. Bad noticeable. Although I like to leave a little bit of noise in the picture altogether because if you if you talk about the shot that you're describing, mm-hmm. I picture the shot with, you know, noisy, leavy, you know, textured trees and grass. And then suddenly this sort of blank color thing in this where the sky is. And to me, the two pictures, the two parts of the pictures don't look like they're connected because there's no texture throughout the entire picture. And And you'll notice some programs will allow you to you know, after you've done all this crazy stuff where you can dial in grain to your yeah. picture again. Yeah, because the noise slider, like any other slider, you can also add more. Right. But you think, well, why should I add grain when I just took away the noise? 
often I find myself if I've edited a picture in Photoshop and I've done a bunch of different things to it, um, every part of the picture can look different depending mm. on what I've done to it. And the green added back into the picture brings it all together, makes it look like one coherent piece rather than a bunch of separate little, you know, editing jobs. On yes, the, on that the makes picture. sense. So what you're talking about, yeah, you, you don't want too much noise in the sky, but you might want to have some kind of texture. In which case, grain is nice. Yeah, the other thing, actually, so in digital cameras, the noise is often chromatic. So little speckles of red and green and blue and stuff splatter throughout the shadows. And that's not natural. Like, no film camera ever had colored-y blobs. So if you remove that from your shadows and then you put grain back in, you've replaced ugly noise with pretty noise. And that's good. There was a film that had color-y grain. Was there? Yeah, it was 3M film um at the time it was uh asasa not iso mm-hmm. asa 1600 and it was which for a film was fast was very fast and it was very very grainy and it was a it was a speckly colored grain that people would use for for specifically that effect they wanted the speckly colored grain to huh. show up in their picture it was the only one i knew that that was that um colorful in its grain I think the rest of the uh, films, if you overdevelop something and you got a high-speed film out of it, you would just get, you know, lumpy grains, not colored grains. But the, the 3M film, 3M too, of all places. Yeah. 3M made this film. Um, uh, yeah, it was a little speckly colors in it. Mm, yeah, it's not an aesthetic I enjoy. Yeah, I'm just showing off my age too. <laughs> Um, and the other thing, of course, that you're always going to come across is vignette. Mm. A little, a little, maybe nice. A lot is probably too much. Yeah. Again, trying to draw the eye towards the part of the picture that you want. Um, I don't use vignette as much as I use in Lightroom the uh, um, radial gradient tool now. Oh, which is something. So it's a clever vignette. It's a, yeah, it's a vignette with a lot of adjustments on it. So you can actually, you know, do uh, exposure, contrast, highlights, shadows. But if you use it as a vignette tool, it, it's it's kind of a little more subtle to the right. uh, corners if you just use it like that. And I find it much better. And it's adjustable. Um, yeah, I like the idea. So you're replacing a blunt tool with a nice fine-tuned tool. Yeah. And you can move the vignette wherever you want. So yes. in case you, don't, you want it off-center, sometimes you might want to, yeah, absolutely. Head. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you want it to focus the eye on something, and that something isn't always in the middle. Right, yeah. Make, no, that's Again, you can go overboard good. with that. You can go overboard with that and make it too much like a tunnel. You don't want to do that, but... Yeah. I, I tend subtle. to find... I tend to apply a very subtle amount of vignette, like, you know, like three or seven on, in Lightroom. Just a teeny tiny hint, because it... Yeah, you should, try the, you should try the radial gradient. Yeah, I'll definitely yeah, give that a I go. I think it's... I think you'll find it more, uh, I don't know, satisfying or something. Well, that's control. I, I'm a big fan of control. Give me control. So yeah, that, that sounds good. More con- yeah, Unless this is the guy control. who won't use a contrast lighter, but will use the curves adjustment instead. Yes, this sounds like the thing for me. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I think that brings us to the end of the common adjustments. Um, before we wrap up, we haven't done a question and answer show in ages and ages and ages and ages and ages. And I have a feeling we may have created questions for people with this show. It's the kind of show that I think a lot of people may trigger questions. <laughs> yeah. 
So now would be a great time to send in your questions. You go to letstashtalk.ie forward slash photo queue and you'll find a form there for submitting your questions. Or I think you can email them to podcasting at bartificer.net as well. Well, you can. Uh, so podcasting at B-A-R-T-I-F-I-C-E-R.net. You can also send them there. But as I say, the um, the submission on the website is the best because then they're all nicely gathered together for me when I go to try get show notes together for a future show. So, you know, let's ask talk.ie forward slash photo queue is definitely the, the most Bart-friendly way of sending in your question. You can also tweet at LTPod if your question fits in 140 characters. Antonio, thank you very much for giving of your time, especially given that you're under the weather today. No problem. Got me up and about at least. Got well, that's good. That's got good. me from my bedroom to my computer. Yay! <laughs> uh, do you want to tell people where they can hear more of your great content? Yes, uh, you can find me at the Switch to Manual podcast at uh, the Street Shots podcast at switchtomanual.com and follow me on Twitter at am rosario and instagram at am rosario any place you look at am rosario my website is amrosario.com so look for that and go to switchtomanual.com those are the two main places and switch to manual tends to be on social media as switch the number two manual manual switch to manual thank you like on twitter and so forth Okay, um, just to remind listeners that there are show notes. There won't be very many of them this time because we uh, usually we reference all sorts of things that I have to put links into. Very, we reference very little today apart from Lightroom, which I think people can find themselves. Uh, but anyway, you'll find some show notes of some sort anyway over at lets-talk.ie. And while you happen to be there, there's three large blue buttons in the sidebar under the heading support the show. I would very much appreciate it if people would support the show. Uh, the way it works is I pay bills at the end of every month and in an ideal world there will be income to match those bills coming through one of those three blue buttons and we're not a million miles away from that ideal world where this this stuff breaks even but we haven't quite crossed that magic threshold yet where it, where it's not costing me money to run this podcast. We're, we're getting closer and you know I thank you guys very much for having it to the point where this thing almost doesn't cost me money uh, but I would like to psychologically i'd like to cross the barrier where podcasting is something i do for fun and i don't have to worry about the bills so if you can help out those three blue buttons are fantastic all of you who have donated to paypal thank you very much i appreciate it greatly and those of you who support the show through patreon you guys are extra special because i know at the end of every month that there's a a nice you know the patreon are going to send me a little chunk of money and I know I can count on that, and that makes planning so much easier. So you guys, I, I appreciate everyone who helps, but I really appreciate the Patreon people because you guys make my life less stressful, and that is always good. Uh, don't think that the only support is financial. Just tell your friends. That's supporting the show. Review us on iTunes. That's supporting the show. Retweet the show tweets. Just you know, tell people, talk to people. It's all helping the show, and I appreciate it all. Anyway, I've been your host, Bart Bouchard, so you can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Are you into video games? Well, check out one of the many club podcasts here on the Stoplight Network. There's Club Nintendo, Club PlayStation, Club Xbox, and Club Steam. Whether you love Mario, love Halo, 
love Crash Bandicoot, or just love some good old-fashioned PC gaming, make sure to check out one of the many club podcasts here on the Stoplight Network. These shows are weekly shows where we'll catch up on what we're playing, what uh, new stories are on that platform this week, and much, much more, all revolving around the wonderful world of video games. So check out Club Nintendo, Club PlayStation, Club Xbox, and Club Steam right here on the Stoplight Network. Oh.